you open your Bibles to the book of James, James chapter 1, 9 through 11 this morning. The sermon's called, A Beautiful Flower Withered. A beautiful flower withered. Uh, A couple of years ago, in the spring, there was just the most abundant crop of wildflowers that I'd ever seen. You guys probably remember, it was just striking. There was wildflowers everywhere. We like to go for walks in the forest by our house and up in the mountains, and every time we went out, we were just thrilled by the fact that whole hillsides were just covered, blanketed in a variety of different flowers, different colors, uh, more than I'd ever seen before. There were places we were walking in, in the woods behind our house, and I remember there were places where you couldn't take a single step without crushing several wildflowers with every step. And wildflowers, or flowers of the field, they, they seem almost unreal when you think about it, don't they? I mean, when I see somebody's yard that's filled with a wonderful array of different types of flowers and different colors, I think, wow, those people have put a lot of work into making their yard look beautiful and to having all these different kinds of flowers and having them grow and thrive. But who planted the wildflowers? Who designed the variety of colors? Who waters them? Seems like something from a George MacDonald book or maybe the Avatar movie if you don't know George MacDonald. But a forest filled with such an abundance of glory doesn't really strike you as an impersonal, mechanistic product of merely useful evolution, does it? It sings about the personal God who delights in abundant beauty. So this is a few years back. Now, there's always some wildflowers, but this was a few years back when it just was everywhere. It was unreal. And I went on a walk in the same woods, my family and I, in the last month or two, and I didn't see a single wildflower. There wasn't one left. But even if I had dug down beneath the feet and feet of snow, uh, they still wouldn't have been there. There wouldn't have even actually been a trace that they had ever been there. They're just gone, like a dream when you wake up. So what happened to them? What happened to all of those wonderful, beautiful, colorful flowers? They were burned to death. The summer came on with its full strength, its scorching heat, and the grass withered, the flowers fell over, and their beauty was destroyed by the heat of the sun. And now there's not even a trace of their beauty left to look at. And the same God who had thoughtfully placed each individual flower also sent that same scorching heat from his son that brought them to nothing. And my most pleasant message for you this morning from God himself is that you are like that flower. Specifically, our passage says that the flower of the meadow, which is to say the wildflower, is like the rich man. So let's read it together. James 1, 9 to 11. 
Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. That's it. That's all we're looking at today. Three verses. You are like the wildflower. The wildflower represents the rich man specifically. And it's talking about earthly riches here. And while some of us are richer than others, we do live in Durango, Colorado, a town that's characterized by a degree of riches even compared to the towns around it, much less many people across the world. That's not to say there aren't poor people with us, and our passage has an encouraging word for those of us who are poor. But at the end of the day, it's worth noting what Isaiah said, that all flesh is like grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. So if you hear this passage and you think, yeah, those rich guys are going down. Like Jeff Bezos, Elon Musk, they're going to get theirs. Then I think you're missing the point. Let's think about this for a minute. We'll call this section of our intro, you might be a rich man. I'll try not to do my Jeff Foxworthy accent while I do it. (laughs) If you have, if you have clean running water piped right into your house, into multiple rooms, into sinks and showers with one handle that makes it come out cold and the other hot so that you can dial it in to exactly the temperature you like on your hands and your head. And then a drain system that takes all of that water and carries it back out and magically disperses with it without spilling a drop, you might be the rich man. If you have a porcelain chair in its own special room in your heated house that holds water which carries waste away with the push of a lever and you never have to think about it again, you might be the rich man. And if it feels like a trial to you that you could really use another special room with its own porcelain chair that carries your waste away with the push of a lever, but you're suffering through the limited number of special rooms with porcelain chairs that carry your waste away at the push of a lever, you might be the rich man. If you're able to pay a company to come to your house every week and carry all your trash away for you and haul it across town to a transfer station which then takes it away and buries it, you might be the rich man. If you're able to pay to have electrons flow from a coal-burning plant through wires across town into wires hidden behind your walls, that flow through little glass bulbs to heat up a filament so that you can see in the dark with the flip of a switch, you might be the rich man. If you're able to pay to use those same electrons to heat your house down to the exact degree you feel most comfortable, 
and to keep your food cold or frozen as you prefer and need, and to power your television and your phone so that you can have instant access to entertainment curated to your most specific subcultural tastes. Whenever you just need to relax a little, you might be the rich man. If you have access to whatever food you want from all around the world, Instant access to any music or song you might feel like hearing. Coffee from the country you think grows the beans just right. A machine that washes your dishes for you and another one that washes your clothes. You might be the rich man. And I think we get the point. That doesn't mean that the poor man doesn't exist. And our passage will speak directly to the poor man with great encouragement. But I want us to get our heads around who this is and who this is talking to so that we can rightly gauge ourselves by the text. So my motivational speech from God this morning is that you are like a flower that is beautiful for a little while until the summer sun goes scorched earth on you and you wither and die. And James tells us what our response to this should be, what your response to this should be. Boasting. Boasting. Don't you love the Bible? You are a flower that will be scorched to death. Brag about that. What a roller coaster ride. It's a wisdom riddle, really. It's a puzzle to work out. How on earth and why on earth should I boast about how brief my beauty is and how quickly I die? Why would I boast about my being humbled from a high earthly estate to a low one? Remember that James is a wisdom book. Here's what Proverbs says wisdom will do for you. To know wisdom and instruction, to understand a proverb and a saying, the words of the wise and their riddles. Wisdom will teach you to understand riddles. Like Let the rich man boast in his humiliation. Or count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. That's a strange thing to say on its own, but we've looked at the wisdom of that, seen that it's good and true. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. Okay, that makes sense. We all love an underdog story. You're the lowly brother. You get suddenly exalted. We all rejoice and boast. But let the rich boast in his humiliation. Who boasts in being humiliated? That's not the time when we tend to boast. That's the opposite of what we tend to do. So let's ponder the wisdom hidden here for us together. Let's read James 1, 9 to 11 again. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. It kind of tells us why and how a rich man will be humbled, but it doesn't really tell us why he should boast in that. It just tells us to do it, which is enough. If God says to do something, we just do it by faith. The Lord said it. We will do it, but we will seek to also understand why God tells the rich man to boast in his humiliation this morning. But first, 
the more obvious part. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The humble boast in being lifted up. It's not so much a riddle. It doesn't get really any further explanation. Just let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. The lowly, the needy come to Christ. He saves them. They exalt him. And they boast. They rejoice. It's not really a riddle. Though it will take some explaining, especially in our twisted up Marxism-infested age, we're going to need a little bit of clarification here on why the lowly brother boasts in his exaltation. In the coming of Christ, many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. That's pretty central to James's point here in this passage, right? Many the first will be made last, and the last will be made first. The lofty will be humbled, the humble will be exalted. But Jesus making the first to be last and the last to be first is actually not because it's bad to be first. And that's what we need to make sure we understand because we live in an age where that's just reinforced every direction. It's bad to be first. But it's not unjust or mean to have someone be first. The idea that that would be bad or unjust or mean comes from the modern pursuit of radical equality. And that's not what James is getting at here. It's not wrong to want to be first. It's actually the reward offered here, isn't it? The first will be last, but the last will be first. That's a, a good thing. Jesus doesn't give out participation trophies to everyone so that nobody's first and nobody's last and everyone's happily mediocre. That idea didn't come from the biblical worldview. It came from other worldviews. Being first is good. Colossians boasts of the glory of God. Colossians chapter 1 telling us that Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. He is before all things. He is the head, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, which literally means in first position. Colossians 1 just boasts of Jesus being first in every way, firstborn of creation, before all things, the head, the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be first. Being first is good, and Jesus is preeminently first, isn't he? Thou and thou only first in my heart. So what does Jesus mean that many of the first will be last and the last first? Well, being first in this life is not evil, it's not wrong, it's not unjust, but it is dangerous. It can make people proud and self-reliant and unwilling to go to God humbly and in complete dependence on Him for salvation and life. In fact, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, that's exactly what it does. Solomon says that money answers everything. You have a problem. If you have enough money to throw at it, you can make the problem go away. If you have enough strength and industriousness, you become used to solving all your own problems, fixing everything, and you don't really feel your need for help. 
like the Laodiceans whom Jesus rebuked in Revelation chapter 3. You say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. See that? I am rich, I I have prospered, and from that they conclude, I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. That's how Jesus finishes. We all are, apart from Christ, poor in spirit, spiritually dead, wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked, but we can use riches and prosperity to fool ourselves that we need nothing. Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Do you see the problem? They're blind, but they think because of their own abundance that they can see just fine. And if you think you're fine and you need nothing, which is often the trap of riches and prosperity, then you don't go looking for help. And so they remain in their guilt. If we think we're good without God, if we don't see our poverty of spirit and turn to God in utter dependence and desperation for his mercy alone to save us, then our pride will keep us away from salvation. Jesus didn't come for the healthy. He came for the sick. If you say, I am sick in my soul, even dead, and you call out for the great physician and take his remedy in the gospel, you will be healed eternally. If you think you are fine, you will not be fine. That's why riches and strength of the flesh are so dangerous. They're not bad or evil, but they're dangerous and they stand in the way of our coming to Christ in the position of desperate need for his mercy that is the only way we can approach him for salvation and for all things. Listen again to Matthew 19, that John read to us earlier. Children were brought to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them and pray, and the disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. You see, the disciples thought that the kingdom of heaven was for the big, the tall, and the strong, and that the small and the little, it's not really for you guys. Maybe later when you become big and smart and wise and strong like us, then you can come too. But Jesus said, no, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go, sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, 
for he had great possessions. He wanted Jesus. He wanted eternal life at some cost, but not at any cost. Not at the cost of his treasure. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, who then can be saved? It's the right question to ask. But Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Then Peter said in reply, See, we've left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sister or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. So it's actually impossible for a rich man to humble himself and cry out for mercy. I mean, first Jesus said it's very difficult. It's very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Then he says it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle and they ask him who can be saved. And he says, yeah, with man it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. It is possible with God for you to take all the strength of flesh you have and count it as loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. By the grace of Christ, it is possible, but it's hard. And this starts to get us to understanding why the rich man should boast in his humiliation. Listen a little more to the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 5, 2-12. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you, falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let the poor brother boast in his exaltation. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You see the lowly brother being exalted in all of these beatitudes. Let the poor brother boast in his exaltation. I don't care how rich you are, how much strength of the flesh you have, this world is passing away, and in the grand scheme of things, the flesh profits nothing. 
Bob Dylan said, I think you will find when death takes its toll, all the money you made will never buy back your soul. And so while in one sense, many of us here are rich, in this ultimate sense, all of us are very, very poor. What profit is it to you? How much do you put in the profit column of your ledger if you gain the whole world but forfeit your soul? How rich really are you? What if you have all the money and all the power, but death is coming for you, and you will receive the ultimate curse of hell for all eternity? Just how rich are you? But if by God's grace you say with Paul, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. You see that Paul, even though he had much to boast about in the flesh, counted all of that loss so that rather than being humbled, he could be exalted in Christ Jesus. Because if you have nothing and you come to Jesus, you get exaltation. The lower you are, the closer you are to being ready to be exalted. Because who does God promise to exalt? Who does he promise to lift up? The humble. The way of Christ is the way of death and resurrection. Again, it's not that it's bad to be exalted, but if you want to be ultimately exalted, first you have to be humbled because you're not really actually as exalted as you think. So in order to be truly exalted, you have to first be humbled so that you can truly be exalted. Life, death, and resurrection. You lose your life so that you can find it. You die in order that you may live. You humble yourself so that in due time, God may lift you up. So the lower you are, the closer to death, loss, and humility, the closer you are to the turnaround to life, gain, and exaltation. And so the lowly brother is invited to boast in his exaltation. He's not called to boast in himself. That would be to stop being lowly and to thwart the whole thing, right? There can be a kind of self-righteousness that comes in having nothing where we think I'm so much better than others who have more than me because I have so much less and therefore I'm better and that's not the point of these passages at all. That thwarts the whole process. That is to try to leverage what you have to exalt yourself, but that's not what James is talking about. The lowly brother is invited to boast in his exaltation. He is called to boast in being exalted because where does true exaltation come from? We read it in Psalm 75 this morning. Not from the east or from the west. Oh wait. Not from the east or from the west. And not from the wilderness comes lifting up. 
but it is God who executes judgment, putting down one and lifting up another. Exaltation comes from God. The lowly brother is invited to boast in the mercy and the grace and the judgment of God by which he has been exalted in Christ Jesus. He is invited to boast in the cross of Christ Jesus. As Paul said, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It's not that poverty is more righteous, but that you have to be humbled by Jesus in order to be exalted. When God calls you to himself, it's after he has humbled you and put you all the way down to death. When God calls a man, he bids him come and die. Baptism is a humbling event, isn't it? You publicly get shoved underwater as a symbol of your death. But right after that, you're pulled back out, and isn't there great glory? And everyone rejoices and claps at God's work and sings and hugs and tears and glorious exaltation. That's a sacramental enacting of your salvation. You die so that you can rise. And after that, you're dried off and you're welcomed to feast at Christ's table with his people. How's that for exaltation? So, Brothers and sisters, count it all joy when you meet trials of various kinds. I'm stepping back to a previous verse. Count it joy when God humbles you because it's the precursor to him exalting you if you look to him in faith. Endure the cross, despising the shame for the joy that's set before you. If you see with the eyes of faith the resurrection and the ascension on the other side of this cross, you will taste its goodness by faith. So, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, because God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So in order to keep illustrating this, imagine that the entrance to the kingdom of heaven is like a garage door that's open only a foot and a half. If you want to go through into the kingdom of God, out of the dirty garage you're in, and out into the wide, sunny world of God's kingdom, you have to lay down on the dirty, oily garage floor to slide through the door so that you can go out. And if you're standing up in the garage with a nice, new, expensive, clean, white shirt on, You're going to hesitate to get down onto the floor so that you can get out and up into the sunshine. But if you've already fallen to the ground and are already covered in dirt, then you're halfway there already. Much of the hard part is over. And so at some level, you can rejoice in your lowly state. We're not talking about wallowing in your sin but in embracing your humble position and looking to God to lift you up and clean you off. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation. After God humbles you, he will exalt you. This is the big pattern of the Christian life. We will be exalted in the resurrection of the body in the life to come. 
And it's also the daily pattern of the Christian life, isn't it? If God has humbled you, rejoice in faith that he is getting ready to exalt you. Humbling weakens and strikes at the flesh and makes the heart ready to receive more grace to walk in the Spirit. That is massive exaltation. So, let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Having come to understand the wisdom of Christ here, the wisdom starts to become plain before us of why you would boast about being humbled, about being humiliated, about being put low. Let the rich brother boast in his humiliation. Humility or brought to a low status. If you're rich, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for you to enter the kingdom of God. The cleaner and nicer and more expensive my white shirt is, the more hesitant I'm going to be to lay down on the oily garage floor to scoot through to the kingdom of God. In fact, with man, it's impossible. But with God, all things are possible. The grace of Christ must pull us through the needle's narrow eye. It's impossible for all of us to come to salvation because of our sinful pride. For the mind that's set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. And so that the reality is that if you've been brought to Christ, if you've been truly exalted in the truest sense, you have been brought low. You had to have been made to see the bankruptcy of your soul. Unable to lift your eyes to heaven, beating on your chest, crying out, God have mercy on me, the sinner. That has to have happened to you in order to have come to Christ. It'll look different in different people's lives, but if you've never humbled yourself and confessed your desperate need for Christ, your sin, not just a few sins you did, but that sin characterizes the depth of your heart and that you have no hope apart from the sovereign mercy of Christ, if you've never been brought low, humbled to confess yourself and your sins like that before God, then you've not really been saved yet. If you've not been made to say, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling, naked come to thee for dress, helpless look to thee for grace, foul eye to the fountain fly, wash me, Savior, or I die. If we've never been brought to look to the sovereign mercy of Christ alone, then we've not come to know him truly. And if you have had great riches or great strength and you've come to Christ, it means he's humbled you in order to show you grace. He's put you down so that he can lift you up. He has killed you so that you can be made alive. And when you see it that way, what can you do but boast at having been brought low? If the only way for me to find Christ, to receive the mercy and the grace of God is for me to have been brought to a... a an awareness and a confession of my desperate need, my absolute poverty of spirit, and that's what it took to get me to confess Christ, then what can you do but boast in your humiliation? Hallelujah, God demonstrated to me that I have nothing and that I am nothing so that I would look to him and cry out and be saved. The guy who stands tall and proud 
keeping his nice shirt clean, is in a house that's about to crumble and destroy him. And then what will become of his nice clean shirt? And so when he comes to understand the situation, he rejoices that he was put down on the dirty, oily floor or at least brought to acknowledge that's where he'd been all along, though he thought he was clean so that he could be brought out and truly exalted. And this is the point that James drives home with the picture of the flower. This is what James is getting at here. This life is fleeting. Earthly glory is temporary and it's fading and it's foolish to boast in it. The rich boast in his humiliation because, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Those wonderful wildflowers I was talking about are gone. They were gone quickly. And so, like a flower of the grass, the rich man will pass away. This life is so short. It's so fleeting, it's so small in light of eternity. And all the money and all the glory that you can make here will be gone before you know it. In the blink of an eye, it will be gone. And who knows what someone else will even do with it. It may be all handed over to a fool who will just squander and ruin it all. All flesh is grass. And all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, and the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever, says Isaiah. The sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass and the flower. The flower was good. Beauty is good. But it was nothing to boast in. It was like a breath, here today and gone tomorrow unable to be held on to. And so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. One day you, unless Christ comes back, you, you will be laboring, you will be right in the midst of your pursuits. Whatever it is you're after, whatever it is you're trying to do, trying to increase your riches, your strength, your beauty, your glory, your legacy, and the next day you'll be dead. Right in the middle of your pursuits, James says. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. And then what? And then what? And then eternity. An eternity of blessing for the one who was humbled by God and cried out for God's mercy and sought first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Or an eternity of curse for the one who insisted he was good, who insisted he had it covered who served money more than God, who put his hope in the uncertainty of riches and didn't make himself rich with good deeds. But if you've been made to forsake the riches of this life, to count it all loss, to put no confidence in the flesh, if you've been put down on the floor, then boast that God has done this for you because now you're ready to rise. The only way out is down and through, and then up. We're like birds that have flown into a cage with no bottom, but we just keep trying to fly up to get out, not knowing that it's just, we just need to go down, and then we can truly get out and up, bumping our head on the top of the cage, thinking that's the way to be exalted, to get free. 
You lose your life to truly find it. You die to truly live. You humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will exalt you. And in light of all of that, it's actually quite easy to see why the rich man would boast in his humiliation. Because God disciplines those whom he loves. He humbles us in order to show us unending exaltation in due time. He pries our eyes off of too small of a goal and just seeking riches here rather than using those for the kingdom of God so that we can be humbled and then exalted for all eternity. This is the path that Christ himself took. He humbled himself to the point of the humiliating death on the cross in love for us so that he might ransom us to God. He gave away and suffered the loss of everything for you so that on the third day, God would raise him up and exalt him to his right hand and give him the name that's above every other name, everything being put under his feet. And that's the path that we're called to follow. Life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And a lot of what we've talked about refers to our conversion, how we came to Christ at the beginning. We died to the old man, now we're alive in him. And a lot of it pertains to the resurrection, to that when your physical body dies and then you get a new resurrection body and you're truly exalted. And we see all of that here. And we also see it that it's the same shape of the path that we walk on our way home. If we start shifting our trust to ourselves, shifting our boast and our confidence to how strong or smart or industrious or rich or beautiful or good or humble we are, then we need to be re-humbled until the time when God can exalt us fully with Christ Jesus without sin. But it's best to just stay humble, to stay dependent on Christ, to put no confidence in the flesh. Whatever riches you have, don't trust in them. Don't boast in them. Don't set your hope on them. Leverage them to exalt the kingdom of Christ. Whatever strength you have, don't depend on it. Don't put your hope in it. Put all your hope in Christ. Leverage it for the advance of the kingdom of Christ. Stay dependent on him. And boast in your humiliation. Boast in being humbled and brought low so that you will be exalted in him. And we will experience regular small humblings, won't we? And exaltations along the path. And James shows us how to boast in both sides of it. As you've been humbled, you can boast in your exaltation that's on the way by faith. And if you're exalted, be careful and boast that when God brings you low so that he can lift you up even higher. We do all of this by faith alone. This is the path of faith in Christ, knowing that life comes through death, living for the eternal rewards in the age to come, not storing up treasure here where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but laying up for ourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves cannot break in and steal. Those withered wildflowers are gone. There's no trace of them. But they aren't really all the way gone, are they? Because the seeds of them are out there somewhere. 
buried in the earth, dormant, waiting for God to speak the word when they will rise again and be multiplied because of their having withered and died. And so it is with all of you who hope in Christ. Even when you are dead and buried, even when you are in a season of being humbled, you can boast in Christ Jesus because you are not gone. You are just awaiting your eternal exaltation in glory. Amen.